Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to Cerebral Faith Live, also known as the Cerebral Faith Podcast, for those who are listening to it on audio later on. Um, Today we're going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is uh, a teaching recorded by Jesus in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Last week, we talked about Jesus' teaching to love your enemy, and we addressed uh, such questions as, is that a reasonable command? How can Jesus expect us to love our enemies, and how do, should we go about doing that? And does any sort of sentimentality need to accompany loving your enemies? Today, we're going to be looking at, we, we're out of Matthew chapter 5 now, and we are in Matthew chapter 6, which also... We, Matthew 5 to 7 is the entire Sermon on the Mount. We've uh, taken eight weeks just to exposit chapter 5. Today we're starting on chapter 6 with Jesus' teaching to, um, uh, to keep your good deeds secret. And you can see on the PowerPoint here, or the Canvas slide rather, uh, our progress so far in this series. We looked at the Beatitudes, what it means to be salt and light, etc. And all of these um, sermons, uh, if you want to call them that, can be found here on uh, the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel, as well as on the Cerebral Faith podcast, uh, which is in audio form on Podbean, Stitcher, Anchor, iTunes, um, and lots of other places where podcasts can be listened to. So we're getting close to being done. After this, there will be three more weeks, and we will be done with uh, our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Now let's get started. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, quote, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. End quote. Now, there are three topics that I want to talk about tonight with regards to this passage. The first is, does Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, an earlier passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, does that contradict what we just read? Does Jesus saying, keep your good deeds secret, contradict what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, where he said, let your light shine before others, um, that they may see your good works and uh, and praise your Father in heaven. Well, do we do our good good deeds in front of others, or do we do them secretly and and not let anyone see us? That's um, 
that is alleged by skeptics of the Bible to be a contradiction. The second topic we want to talk about tonight is uh, what, what I've labeled here the historical problem of trumpet blowers. Um, what was this actually a thing and did the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, the, the, those in religious authority, did they actually have people accompany them blow trumpets as they were give, as they were performing acts of charity? Well, there's scant historical evidence for that. Is this not, um, a historical inaccuracy in the gospel of matthew and the third issue is uh, basically you know how to apply jesus's teaching to our lives how do we avoid uh the kind of hypocrisy jesus is talking about so let's move to the first topic should we do our good deeds in front of others or not how do we reconcile the apparent contradiction between what jesus says in matthew 5 and what he says in matthew 6 yeah. Now, again, I'll, I'll just read the passage here. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says, quote, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. End quote. So, the objection is, well, do your, Jesus is saying to, to do two things. And if you do one thing, you can't do the other. If you do your good de deeds in front of other people, well, you're not keeping your good deeds secret. And if you keep your good deeds secret, well, then you're not letting your light shine before others. You're not doing good. You can either do one or the other, but you can't do both. It is it is argued. Well, doesn't Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 contradict Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4? I don't think so. The, what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6 is he's condemning doing good in order to show off and make yourself look good. In Matthew 5, Jesus is saying to do good in front of others in order to draw attention to God. Let people see your good works so that their attention is directed to God. They see the love of God through you. Um, as preachers sometimes put it, you know, let when they look at in your when they look in your eyes, it's like they're looking into the eyes of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. When when people look at you, it and and what you do uh, for others and for them, it will remind them of God, and it will fix their thoughts upon God, and they will praise God because He sent you into their life, into your life, to help you in the way that they're helping you. And so it's it's really just, it's a matter of motivation. Why are you doing your good deeds in front of others? Is it to bring glory to yourself? Am I do, this is something we always have to be on guard about when we are doing good deeds for other people. We need to think, we need to be consciously aware. And sometimes we might not even be aware of, that we're being, you know, the, the word is ostentatious. Ostentatious. Um, 
it might be a subconscious thing. We have to do introspection. Are we doing this to let people, you know, to bask in the glory? Uh, look, look at how great of a person I am. Look at what I'm doing for other people. Aren't I a good person? Aren't I a good Christian? Look, look at me. Look, look at all I'm doing. Praise me. Or are we doing it out of love for others and out of love for God? That's really what Jesus is concerned with. Um, and we should, we should do good in secret. Um, I, if we can, I think. If we're seen by other people, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like, oh no, I've been spotted. I've been spotted doing something good. This is terrible. No, I mean, if they see us, they see us. If they don't, they don't. That's, um, it doesn't really matter whether you're seen or not. If, um, it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said about being selfless. It's, a, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It, well, if you're doing good to please God and to please others, you don't, you're not paying attention about what people think about you, whether they think you're a good person or, um, or not. Um, you just, you're just not paying attention to people's opinions either way. You're just living in obedience to God uh, and you're not, you're not putting on a performance. If people see you, they see you. If they don't, they don't. But if you, if you can do it in secret and get away with it, Jesus says, in a way you're actually better off because the only one who saw you do it was God. And God, God will think highly of you. and God will uh, give you a reward. Jesus says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there's no contradiction here. It's just, it, it is a surface level contradiction. But when you think about why Jesus is saying do this and why Jesus is saying not do this, it makes perfect sense. Um, and as Michael Jones put it, uh, he, he runs the YouTube channel Inspiring Philosophy. As he put it in his YouTube channel, uh, I mean, his YouTube video on this very, he's got a whole series, which I highly recommend. It's, it's the, it's the, I call it the alleged Bible contradiction series. He's probably got like 50 of them up by now. The videos are only like three, four, five minutes long. Uh, he said in his video, talking about the surface level contradiction, that using Jesus's analogy of a city on a hill, why does a city shine? Well, it doesn't shine for itself. It doesn't shine for its own sake. It shines for the sake of everyone living in it, you know, kind of personalizing um, a city. Uh, it's not shining so that people go, wow, look at how bright that city is over there. It's shining so that people will know, um, people can see where they're going. It's, it's, do, it's doing it for the sake of others, not for yourself. Now, with that out of the way, I want to move to topic number two, the historical problem of trumpet blowers. Um, this, there is no evidence in the first century, in first century Israel, that almsgiving was preceded by, by trumpet blasts. There's not a scintilla of, of extra biblical, of extra biblical evidence that supports the use of trumpets being blown whenever the Pharisees, Sadducees, or other religious leaders would give to the needy. Uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, um, this 
is supposed to present a problem, a historical accuracy problem for the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, for the new and Jesus at worst. How do we respond to this? First, first of all, as the saying, as the old saying goes, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because we don't know of any extra biblical documents that or archaeological findings that corroborate the act of trumpet blowing, that doesn't mean there is any, or that doesn't mean that this didn't happen. Biblical scholarship kind of has this boy who cried wolf scenario where something is said to be false in the historical narratives of the Bible because there, there's no extra biblical support for it in archaeology or extra biblical documents. But then years later, archaeologists discover something that confirmed that the Bible was right all along. The Pool of Bethesda in John's Gospel is one example. Um, the existence of the Amorites is another example. The town of Nazareth, the use of the political term polytarchs in Luke's gospel is another example. There, there's so many examples um, of scholars saying, well, the Bible must be wrong because we don't see evidence of this anywhere else in the historical record. And then later, archaeologists find something and they have to backtrack. You can see several examples of this in episode 113 of the Cerebral Faith podcast. It's not here on YouTube. Uh, as I, as this, this was when the audio podcast was only an audio podcast. Nowadays, I have a web show on Cerebral Faith uh, called Cerebral Faith Live, and I download the video later and use the audio for the Cerebral Faith podcast. So they're one, the, the live web show and the audio podcast are really one and the same. But that wasn't always the case. And um, episode 113, um, you can find it on Stitcher, Spotify, or even just on CerebralFaith.net. The episode is titled Episode 113, The Case for the Historicity of the Old Testament with Kristen Davis. Kristen Davis and I talk about a lot of these examples, specifically in the Old Testament, where scholars... Um, they, they were saying things like that, ah, that probably didn't happen, or this probably, this person probably didn't exist on the basis of a lack of historical evidence. But then years later, evidence was found and the Bible was shown to be right all along. So I'm not going to lose any sleep over pre charity trumpet leaders not having any historical backing outside the New Testament. Secondly, it's possible, and I think probable, in fact, that Jesus was being histor uh, rhetorical, not literal. It's possible that Jesus was being rhetorical, not literal. During my studies on the Sermon on the Mount, in preparation uh, for this series, several commentators decided to go for this option. For example, uh, R.T. France, in his Tyndale New Testament commentaries, writes, quote, Sound no trumpets is probably metaphorical for calling attention to oneself, as in other ancient literature, since no literal use of trumpets in connection to, with almsgiving is clearly attested. In Marvin Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament, he writes, quote, Sound trumpet. There seems to be no trace of any such custom on the part of almsgivers, so that the expression must be taken as a figurative one for making a display. It is just possible that the figure may have been suggested by the trumpets of the temple treasury, 13 trumpet-shaped chests to, re to receive the contribution of worshipers. 
See note on Luke 21, 2, end quote. David Turner and Daryl Bach write in the Cornerstone Biblical Commentary that, quote, blowing trumpets in the synagogues. This may be metaphorical, like the modern expression, blowing your own horn, or a hyperbolic reference to drawing attention to oneself, or it might refer to a trumpet-shaped uh, collection box that resounded when coins were thrown into it, end quote. So you can see that several, three different commentators here are all opting for the metaphorical option. Jesus is, in a sense, ridiculing people who are self-righteous and do good works in front of others to draw attention to themselves. He paints them in a very silly light as when they go to give money to someone who's in need, there's these people accompanying them with trumpets going, like, it's, it's, it's silly. And I, I think that illustrates just how silly we look in God's eyes when we are doing good for our own glory. We're we're like the we're like these um it's a word picture. It's Jesus it's satire. Jesus is being satirical when he talks about the religious leaders having trumpet blowers accompanying them when they do good deeds. Uh, it's just a silly it's just a silly picture and Jesus is in a way ridiculing the self-righteous um a third possibility here is that the trumpet was a reference to the shape of the gift uh, the gift box um for example we read in Robert H Stein's uh footnote in the CSB study bible that quote um the words whenever you assume the the words whenever you give assume the disciples will regularly assist needy people. The prohibition don't sound a trumpet stems from the fact that the offering chests in the temple, shofar chests or trumpet chests, were trumpet shaped with a wide opening where coins were deposited and a winding ever narrower funnel that at its narrowest point exits into the chest. This arrangement prevented thieves from sticking their hands into the chest. Shakal to one six one and five. Thus, sounding the trumpet is likely a reference to tossing coins noisily into the trumpet-shaped coffer, and thereby calling attention to one's generosity. Jesus described such conduct as hypocritical. The word hypocrites, Greek, hypocrites. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, originally referred to actors who performed in Greek or Roman theaters. The hypocrites to whom Jesus referred are spiritual actors who pretend to have piety in order to win human approval. The, instruc the instructions about the left hand and the right hand prohibit a person from celebrating personal acts of, of righteousness. Give liberally, but never dwell on the fact that you do so, end quote. So here we have three possible options for solving this problem one is that we just there's just it could have happened and there's just no evidence of it yet maybe some will be discovered someday the second is that jesus is using a, a word picture he's he's being rhetorical he's not being literal this didn't literally happen or the third is that it's a reference to the shape of the gift box so the problem of the trumpet, the historical problem of the trumpet blowers is not really a problem after all. Topic three, 
how to avoid the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about. Jesus' command here is, I think, all-encompassing. It doesn't really ha- it doesn't have merely to do with our acts of charity, our giving to people in need. It covers pretty much any act of godliness we do. Jesus goes on later in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about not praying in front of others to be seen by them. Uh, we'll get to that next week when we cover Jesus' teachings concerning prayer. A recurring theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is concerned with our hearts and not just our thought life. He's concerned, he's just as much concerned with what goes on inside of our hearts as he is our our actions and our, our deeds, our behavior. He doesn't merely want us to refrain from sinful actions, but he wants us to not be sinful people who are prone to sinful actions. Don't be so angry with your brother that you might be tempted to kill him in a fit of murderous rage. Don't look after a married woman with lust so that you won't entertain the thought of taking her and committing adultery with her. Here, Jesus is concerned again with our hearts. Giving to the downtrodden is a good thing. Yet Jesus considers it sinful if it is done out of ostentatious motivations, i.e. to be seen by men. The proper motives of almsgiving, prayer, or any sort of good action or behavior is to please God and to bring him glory. The problem of many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that they loved to show off their piety. They wanted to earn man's praise. How often do we see this? Well, I can I can remember seeing YouTube or TikTok videos where someone is doing something unusually generous. Maybe they just go around randomly giving people money, or maybe they offer to pay for someone's groceries. Maybe they spontaneously come up to complete strangers on a date and offer to pay for the couple's meal. Um, Initially, when I see these videos, I feel a warming in my heart, but it's ruined as soon as I realize Wait, the reason I know about this is because they recorded themselves doing it. (laughs) They recorded themselves doing these good acts and posted them on the internet for all to see. Such a realization just, it it spoils it for me. It, it, It spoils what would otherwise be wholesome content. Um, whenever I watch these videos, I'm like, oh, that's so nice. But then I'm like, wait a minute. I think, well, you have your reward. Your reward is clout. Your rewards are likes on a video and subscriptions on your channel. The, the smartphone has replaced the trumpet in our modern day world. I mean, you know, assuming there was a literal trumpet in the first place. Now, I don't want anyone to think that if someone knows about your good deeds, this is automatically bad. No, again, like I said before, Um, It doesn't matter if you're seen or not. In fact, many of your good deeds must be seen in order for us to be salt and light of the world. Some good deeds are impossible to do without other people seeing seeing what you do. Um, If you donate a kidney to a complete stranger in order to save their lives, at least the hospital staff knows about what you did. 
Um, <laughs> so some things are just impossible. You know, maybe they tell other people like, "Hey, this completely just random person just donated his kidney. He doesn't even know the patient at all. He just was like, he just overheard us talking and just volunteered." Well, we are to do our good deeds with good motives, not with ostentation mode, ostentatious motives, not with the look at me, look at me kind of attitude. Um, and if you do something unusually kind for someone, and I mean, let's say your friend records you without your knowing, like you didn't ask him to record, to, to make a TikTok of you doing it, you, you you had no idea he was recording you, and then he uploaded it. Well, that's not going to, God's not going to hold that against you because you didn't, you didn't know you were being recorded. It's not your fault. <laughs> um, that's fine. Um, but mo in most of these cases I, I see on YouTube uh, or, or TikTok or whatever, it's like, yeah, the people knew what they were doing. They were recording themselves beforehand, and that just, it just ruins it for me. Because I'm like, yeah. Um, and a really important thing to remember is, is that Christians are not immune to this kind of self-serving good doing. This is not this is not a non-Christian problem. This is a human problem. And well, well, we saw in part one of this series that Jesus's audience was primary was primarily his twelve disciples. He's he was talking to his 12 disciples primarily and only secondarily the accompanying crowd, not to mention Christians through the centuries who would read his words recorded uh, in Matthew's gospel. Ergo, the Beatitudes are descriptions of kingdom of God and inhabitants and the commands of Jesus are aimed at Jesus's followers. They are prescriptions for how we are to live in the kingdom of God. Therefore, if Jesus is warning his disciples against this, then it must be possible for the Christian to do these sorts of self-serving, look-at-how-godly-I-am kind of behaviors. Examine yourself, Christian. Ask yourself some questions. Do you find yourself often bringing up good, good things in conversations you do? do you, have you ever recorded yourself doing lots of good things? Um, if so, why do you think you do that? That brings me to my next point. Why would a Christian be ostentatious? Why would a Christian do good things in order to uh, get others to notice? Well, the simple answer is pride. There's only one answer, pride. Pride is at the root of the sin of ostentatiousness, as well as many other sins. We do it because we like it when people notice the good things we're doing and they pat us on the, on the back and they say, well, you paid for that man's meal. You're such a kind person. Or you paid off so-and-so's student loan debt. Or whatever. You know, what a generous person you are. Or, for my apologist friends, wow, you are so smart. You know so much about the Bible. You know so much science and philosophy. I'll bet there isn't any skeptic you can't refute. It feels good to be praised, doesn't it? It feels good to be told that we're morally good, intelligent, physically strong, skilled at sports. We're, we're just good at anything. Good morally, 
good uh, in terms of skill. It feels good to be praised. Of course it does. And I want to make it clear that there's not necessarily anything wrong about that good feeling that comes when people praise you. Being told you're you're doing good work should should be. It should be a morale booster. And there's nothing wrong with being happy when someone gives you two thumbs up and says, good job, way to go. Uh, what is wrong is when those good feelings become a motivation to continue to do good things, either morally good things or, uh, or, or just doing a, a good job at whatever task you're doing. Um, but especially, especially in the moral and spiritual realms, when we those good, the the good feeling that comes from being praised, when that becomes a, a motive to do to continue to do good things, that's a wrong motive. Now, when people, and this has happened, there have been people who mistakenly think that I have a PhD in philosophy or theology. I find that quite flattering because I think, wow, I'm whatever I'm saying about the Kalam cosmological argument or the social trinitarianism, I must have read so much that that I must sound like a, a PhD scholar, uh, even though I'm not. That's quite flattering. Uh, I correct them. I say, no, I'm not. I'm just a really well-read layman, and all I. My credentials stand on my bibliography and all my footnotes. Um, I don't let people get away with that misconception. But it is flattering to, to think that, wow, I must have said something to give you that impression. Now, if that becomes a motivation for me to start using a lot of big words and rhetoric, uh, if that becomes a motivation for me to win debates against atheists or Unitarians or Calvinists, if that becomes the motivation for me to put out more apologetic content, rather than the purpose of convincing unbelievers that Christianity is true and rational and equipping believers with answers that they may need when they go out to witness to non-Christians, if, if my motive is not to win unbelievers and equip believers, but rather to prop myself up as this, you know, this really smart um, intellectual... Uh, then I've lost my way, um, and I need to, you know, repent and re and reflect on that. If you now, if you if you like praying publicly, because people will say, "Wow, it, he has such a close relationship with God. I wish I could be as spiritual as him." If you, that's if, then you've lost your way. Your reason for uh for praying should be to get closer to God to bring him your wants and needs and petition to thank him for all the good things he's done for you to praise him for all that he all that he's done and for all who and what he is to confess any sins you've committed and to ask him to forgive you that should be your motivation for praying period publicly or privately pride is a dangerous sin Pride is, <coughs> excuse me, it's a massive problem. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. We find this in James chapter 4, verse 6, quote, But he gives more grace, therefore it says, 
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, end quote. Think about that for a second. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I can't think of anything scarier than having the God of the universe in opposition to me. I do not want the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, morally perfect King of Kings and Lord of Lords to be in opposition to me because I won't stand a chance. This is the inverse of if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, if God is against us, who can be for us? No one. You, you're in big trouble if God is against you. Just ask the Pharaoh who pursued the Israelites in the wilderness. So pride, we should, we should guard ourselves. We should try to avoid pride like the plague. Our anthem should be that, that cutlass song, Take My Pride Away. Because if there, I mean, it doesn't really, I mean, all sin is, you know, a damaging, to, damaging to your relationship with God. It, it separates you from God. You need Jesus' blood to cleanse you of it. But God seems to have a special disdain for pride because if he, if it, the Bible says he's not just unhappy with you, he's not just disappointed with you, he's in opposition to you. That's scary. We should do everything we can to pursue humility. Um, in Matthew chapter 23, right before Jesus goes on his lengthy rant against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the many woes he pronounced upon them, he said this, quote, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to, and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassel and tie the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are, are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. End quote. Here, Jesus basically says what I just said, that pride is behind ostentatiousness. The Pharisees did the self-serving things they did out of pride. They exalted themselves rather than letting God exalt them. And Jesus says, those who exalt themselves uh, will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what does Jesus mean here? Well, in Luke's gospel, 
the saying is found in a in the context of a parable. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 11, quote, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then humbled, uh, then humbled, hold on, I lost my place. Uh, if so, the host who invited you will come to you and say, to, give this person your seat. Then uh, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. End quote. Here in Luke's gospel, Jesus' saying appears um, in another context, the context of a, of a parable. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And we see here that this humbling is an unpleasant experience. It's an embarrassment, an embarrassment that could have been avoided if one had simply taken the lowest seat to begin with. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said, the first will be last and the last will be first. Now, here's here are ways to get rid of pride. This first, this first solution, okay, again, I said, Okay, James 4 says God opposes the proud. That's a scary thought. And so we want to avoid being prideful. Um, so how do we do that? Well, first, ask God to make you humble. This may, this may seem elementary. But if you have ten sinful tendencies you need to get rid of, you should go to God and ask him to help you. And he will help you. God's will is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. See Romans chapter 8, verse 29. To be made like him. So pray some you can pray something like, God, I don't want to be prideful. I don't want to, I don't want to think of myself more highly than I ought. Please help me and be humble. And when I give, please help me to watch my motives. I want my motives for doing spiritual things to be to please you and to bring you glory. Please help me. You know I can't do this on my own. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can pray something like that or something along those lines. Um, and if you are prideful, you can just, you, I, in fact, I recommend you just pray this as a safeguard. Lord, I may not be prideful right now. Help me not to ever become prideful in the future. But if I am prideful right now, Humble me, because I don't want you to be in opposition to me. I want you to be on my side. I don't want to be. I don't want to be on the other side, because I I've seen what happens to people who who you oppose. It doesn't turn out well for them. Um, you can pray it as a safeguard, or you, you know, depending on. And if you say, God, I don't know if I'm prideful. You could say this, God, I don't know if I'm prideful or not. This may be. This may be uh, uh, something that I'm not aware of. I may think I'm humble, but I might be prideful in reality. So God, show me. Show me if I'm prideful or not and, and, and help me to, to, to become humble. God, God, God will help you. He's, 
God is the author and sanctifier of our faith, and um, and he wants you to be humble. He wants you to, he doesn't want to oppose you. Um, he wants to be in a right relationship with you. Now, if you are prideful and God is about to humble you, you may find this to be a painful process. Pride by its very nature is resentful towards humility. It is resentful. It hates humility. Pride has a fiery, fiery anger towards humility. And we all know this, don't we? We've all had our pride wounded. We've all, we've all, we've all had, we've all had times where we've been knocked down a peg and it makes us angry. We are resentful towards the person who humbled us. Pride by its very nature is resentful of being humble. It's going to hurt. The reason it makes us angry is because it hurts. It hurts to have wounded pride. However, you know, if you're, if, here's, here's one thing, here's, here's a word of encouragement. <coughs> if you've realized, oh, I have a pride issue, and you're admitting that to God, and you're asking him for help, you're already a portion of the way there, because you have to be somewhat humble to even admit that you have a problem. Um, remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You're admitting your poverty in spirit. You're mourning over it. Therefore, yours is the kingdom of heaven, and you will be comforted. You are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and you will be filled. The next thing you can do is bask in the truth. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is remind yourself that you'd be nothing without God. I mean that both figuratively and literally. You wouldn't even exist if God didn't will you. Nehemiah 9.6 and Colossians 1 say that God keeps the whole universe together. If God were to, as William Lane Craig once put it, if God were to just stop thinking about the universe, everything would be annihilated. Not even gradually, like you know the superheroes in Avengers Infinity War. It would be like like flipping a light switch off. You'd, you'd literally be nothing without God. Um, you wouldn't be a Christian without God. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. It is the Lord who gives grace. See James chapter 4, verse 6. It, it is the Lord who gives us the ability to accomplish God's will. See Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Um, placement. In a spiritual family, see John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. And it is God to whom all good gifts come to us, see James chapter 1, verse 17. And so every good gift and talent you possess has been given to you by God, either directly or indirectly. Remind yourself daily that you can literally do nothing without God. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Also, you might want to dwell on how much you can improve in various areas, rather than focusing on how good you are. Focus on 
wow, look at how much I have to go. Now this is, okay, this, this, this can introduce a problem in and of itself. Again, if you, if you focus on, especially in the moral realm, that can lead to a sort of, um, it can lead to self-loathing, it can lead to a lack of confidence. Uh, so you do need to proceed with caution there if you focus either on your sinfulness and, you know, the, the amount of sanctification you have yet to go, or if it, in a non-moral realm, um, wow, I mean, I still have a, I've gotten better at this sport or this game or this job, but I still have such a ways to improve. Uh, but I think maybe you can focus, yeah, as I, you know, you can say, yeah, I still have a, a good ways to go, but I've come, a, I've come a long way as well. So I think maybe focusing on both can help kind of, it can keep you from being prideful, but it can also keep you from, um, looking down on yourself. You know, yes, I'm imperfect. Yes, I have, I still have a ways to go in my sanctification. Yes, I still have a ways to improve and whatever it might be that you're not, you know, as good as you could be, whether it be a more in a, the moral realm or some non-moral area, I think maybe focusing on both at the same time can counteract and prevent both errors. But the goal here is to have a realistic view of yourself. Again, like C.S. Lewis said, it's not think humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Um, and as Lewis also said, you know, he who is always... You know, he's always looking down, doesn't look up. And the prideful person looks down, he doesn't he doesn't look up. And the metaphor here is, well, God is up. If you're if you're looking down on other people because you're so much you think you're so much better than them, you're not looking up at God. Yeah. Um so if I see how utterly, utterly unlike Jesus I still am. You know, I'm, I'm more like him than I used to be, thank God. But I've still got a ways to go in my sanctification. Um, and if I focus on that, that will... That will... Oh, oh my gosh, I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Here's the quote from C.S. Lewis uh, on the, in, the, in, the, in the slides. Uh, yes, he says... Quote, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. End quote. I got a little a bit ahead of myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so keep yourself from being like, to keep yourself from being like the people Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, you need to pursue humility and scorn pride and that will that is it for um today's presentation uh come back next week 3 p.m it'll it's it'll be saturday i'm gonna start i'm gonna try to start streaming these on saturdays even though people watch these streams on playback either on video or on on the audio podcast, I have been getting very little engage live engagement this year. 
and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And the only thing I can think about is maybe it's the time slot issue. So I've moved the time slot of this web show around a bit to try to, you know, accommodate people's, you know, busy lives and busy schedules uh, so that we can have a, a good discussion. One of the reasons I do this live is that people can ask me questions about what I've said in the presentation or they can inter ask my uh, my guest in real time questions and I or they can respond. And so I'm going to start doing the rest of these at 3 p.m. on Saturday. That would be 12 p.m. for people on the West Coast, but 3 p.m. for people on the East Coast um, to try to, you know, get more engagement. I also think the seven-month sabbatical I took prob probably damaged the momentum I got. Um, but I know it's not a waste of time because people do watch this. People do listen to this. Um, I think the, the Cerebral Faith podcast gets hundreds of uh listen uh, of listeners per episode um so i know people are hearing what i have to say but i really do like the live element i love i love seeing people in the live chat and i, I love the back and forth interactions sometimes we get really good really good questions that fuel uh, a rigorous discussion during that you know extra 30 uh, extra 30 minutes and the CFL snippet series that I've started, this is, um, it's, you know, little excerpts from past live streams. Some of those are going to be from the Q&A section because the questions uh, were so good. Um, they, I thought they, they would be good for snippet content. So, yeah. Next week, Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, uh, on YouTube, here on YouTube, and we're going, the next topic is going to be, um, let me check here, it's going to be on prayer. We're going to be looking at what Jesus taught about prayer, and specifically, we're going to go into a pretty deep examination of what is called the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, and so on. And we're going to, you know, analyze the content of Jesus' prayer. So come back for that. Um, some of the, some, let's see. Some other things I'm doing is, again, I'm, I'm not, editing videos and uploading them anymore but rather i'm making excerpts of these live streams so if you are anybody who's not a fan of these long one hour uh web show episodes they can they can just watch maybe some of them are five some of them are five ten minutes some of them are like 20 minutes um but they are excerpts uh of cerebral faith live because this is base. This is basically how I'm going to prevent burnout. Just letting Cerebral Faith Live just be the main hub of all my non-written content, rather than 
you know, takes takes uh takes takes a lot of the workload off of me and I get I, I put it's a I'm able to put out lots of good good content in uh, different formats. There are short videos, there's the long videos, the presentations and interviews, there's the audio podcast and it's it's all just coming from one recording. Uh so I can continue to be all things to all people so that by the grace of God I might save some. Uh, so I pose, I'm, I'm uploading these uh, CFL snippets on Saturday, uh, on Mondays, and I've got several scheduled to go up. Right now, I'm doing a bunch of them from my Problem of Hell series, which I covered back in Season 1 of Cerebral Faith Live, because the Eternal Torment Advocates just keep Come, just keep coming at me with the same objections over and over and over again. And it's it's nice to just have like a five, ten minute video saying, I've addressed this here, go watch this. Um But I've got I've I've rewatched all of my Cerebral Faith Live episodes and I've made timestamps and I'm gonna be uploading those pretty soon. Um not just about, not just from the Hell series, but from all of them. Uh, even there's even going to be excerpts from interviews I've had, like with Nick Peters and uh, Ken Samples. Um, I kind of wish I had been doing uh, the, the Cerebral Faith Live web show since 2019 when I started the audio podcast. I wish I, I wish they had always been fused. Then I'd have a whole bunch of, uh, you know web show episodes to get all kinds of content from but yeah next week just come back and uh we're going to be talking about jesus's teaching on prayer so and if you'd like to support this ministry financially go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith if you're watching this on youtube like the video and subscribe um and if you want to attend live, that's that. Then we can have that, you know, um, discussion in the live chat. Um, um, oh yeah, and for those watching, yeah, like the video and subscribe. But also, if you're if you're um, if you're listening to the audio version, the audio on the Cerebral Faith podcast, uh, if you could go on to iTunes and leave a review because that really helps uh, the iTunes algorithm. It will recommend the podcast to more people. Uh, and if you want to see more of my content, uh, whether it be blogs, podcasts, or videos, you can all of it can be found at www.cerebralfaith.net. And before I go, let me uh, pull up my patron manager, because one of the benefits of being a patron is you get shout-outs on the podcast and in the videos. So I want to give a shout-out to David Shannon, Red Blade Flame, Steel Cat, Slam RN, Andrew Melnick, Nathan Hamilton, Jordan D. Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, 
and David Parrish. And again, if you'd like to be a Cerebral Faith patron, have your name on on the podcast, get other goodies, uh, just go to www.patreon.com slash Cerebral Faith. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.